This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. The Human Torch was denied a bank loan. Unique New York. Unique New York. Ow now, brown cow. Wait, come on. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, currently streaming on VOD. But before we launch into this week's movie, next week we will be covering a movie that's very special in my family, Dodgeball, a true underdog story. Starring Vince Vaughn, Christine Taylor, and Ben Stiller. You won't want to miss that one, so catch it on Stars or VOD before next week's show. And if you don't have Stars, you can add it as a premium channel add-on on either Hulu or Amazon Prime. I believe they have the option ability to do a free week trial. All right, also... You can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page on our website, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Finally, we've moved the schedule around a bit in the first half of this year, but we are still planning our schedule to finish the spring and into the summer, including a tiebreaker show, a revisit, and another list episode, as well as much, much more. So get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, by email, or on our website to let us know what you would like us to cover yet this year. With that, Dad, I know you don't care much for Will Ferrell movies, but he has been one of the biggest comedy stars basically since the beginning of the new millennia. What is it that you usually have trouble with in his movies? I've softened. Really? Yes. Is there any particular reason? I don't know. I'm finding them more funny. I see. For a while, for a while, I thought it was kind of just inane a bit, um, but I'm having a new appreciation for it and some of the wordplay and uh, general gist of the movies. Do you remember the first time we saw this movie? Mm, no, I think we saw it on DVD. So we did. This was a rental for us. I remember that Steve Carell came back to The Daily Show because I believe this was his first feature film after he was a correspondent on The Daily Show. And he was doing some of the, what is it, the press junket ahead of the movie? Uh, base, yes. uh, promoting. That's the word I was looking for. And uh, he was trying to promote this movie on The Daily Show. And I remember when it came out. That, oh, okay, Will Ferrell's going to be in this and uh, Christina Applegate. And the people I had a little bit of general awareness to but had no familiarity with whatsoever. And I remember that probably about, I don't know, six months after it came out, something like that, maybe eight, ten months, uh, we had rented this. And I think you, me, and Mom watched this and thought it was the dumbest thing we had ever seen. And the only time I remember laughing in the original version of this movie was at the line, because it, even in the outtakes, he said it's the most absurd thing that they put in the movie, uh, How, <laughs> what in German means San Diego. Yes. Which we'll be covering here in a little bit. If you've seen the movie, you obviously know what I'm referencing. So before we kind of uh, get too far, uh, Dad, do you have your plot summary ready? I do. In the testosterone-filled world of early 1970s TV news anchorships, Ron Burgundy, 
Will Ferrell, is thrust into love and conflict with his beautiful reporter and soon-to-be co-anchor. Ron is sent into a tailspin and hits almost rock bottom as events unfold. An event ultimately triggers his redemption, and he has learned his lesson and to lose the boys-only club. All right. Recognition for this movie, there basically is none. Uh, First off, (laughs) I think that uh, as far... Well, as far as polite society or those that take movies seriously or the rest of that, I think they have the disdain for Will Ferrell that uh, certain people that hold themselves too seriously do. Oh, Um, you mean like A.O. Scott? I mean anybody. Oh, my. Like Richard Roper would be in that category. Yes. Anytime you read A.O. Scott, it's almost like, does he like anything? I, I, I don't know. I, I literally could not tell you. But, uh, the, yeah, there there really isn't any. There's no critical acclaim. It hasn't been retired for anything. It's not held as one of the great comedies necessarily by other comedians per se. Uh, this is just a movie that I think it has a legacy, and we'll get to that, for other reasons that have to do with the crowd who loves it and for what it did to jumpstart several careers and if anything that's the recognition of this film did you know many of the actors and actresses were good at improvisation they would sometimes do up to 20 different versions of reaction lines trying out the first thing that popped into their heads did you know the mexican restaurant veronica visits with the girls from the station is named escopimos en su alimento which in spanish means we spit on your food (laughs) <laughs> did you know this film had been pitched to dreamworks almost 20 times before following the successes of old school in 2003 and elf also from 2003 dreamworks had little faith in the film doubting will ferrell and adam mckay could pull off an entire film based on news anchors the film however grossed 84 million domestically and mckay had so much extra footage he was able to make a second film out of it Did you know Ron's dog is named Ted Baxter uh, after Ted Knight, the WJM news anchor of Mary Tyler Moore? Did you know John C. Riley was offered a role but turned it down because he was filming The Aviator in 2004? He says he regrets the decision. He was cast in a cameo in the sequel. Did you know Will Ferrell has played flute since elementary school? Did you know? The first draft of the screenplay included suggested actors for various roles. For Champ Kind, John C. Riley. For Brick Tamlin, Chris Parnell. For Brian Fantana, Ben Stiller. For Ed Harkin, Ed Harris. For Garth Holliday, Dan Aykroyd. For Frank Vichard, Alec Baldwin. The script also specified another member of the news team, Marshall Connors, with William H. Macy suggested for the part. Did you know? The voiceover narration for the film's opening title sequence was provided by Bill Curtis, who was himself a longtime television news anchor during the 70s for both the CBS Early Morning News in 1982 with Diane Sawyer and WBBM News in Chicago. Did you know? A good portion of scenes from the trailers were omitted from the final cut. These scenes include Burgundy taking a bullet for Veronica, 
and a later shot of him and her emerging from a television van to a cheering crowd, with Burgundy visibly showing a bandaged wound. The line where Ron asks Garth about his divorce while at a party is also missing. Other shots cut include Ron walking into a filing cabinet and falling over, alternate dialogue when Ron asks Veronica what her dream is, Veronica and Ron tackling each other on the conference room table, collapsing, with Ron shouting, let's make a baby. Ron admiring his own billboard, Ed Harkin asking what a lead is, sitting by a poolside, standing by the side of the road with a long beard and guitar on his back trying to hitchhike, and others. Did you know? When the in-studio monitor shows the rolling creds during Ron and Veronica's banter, two of the credited writers are listed as John Hamm and Adam Scott, both of whom are close friends of Paul Rudd. So, Dad, if anything, and does, I'm not sure it matters uh, to this particular movie, but what is this movie about? Male chauvinism, sexual harassment, and the stereotypes of men who act in these manners. So I kind of did two different versions of this, but I think they more or less get at the same thing. I just kind of tried to attack it from two different angles, I guess. The juxtaposition of a boys club dominant man at the top of his field having to adapt to the evolving times of increasing female empowerment or... A local news anchorman gets slowly displaced from his perch atop 1970s culture by a new female colleague. Actually, when watching this again as a, in a critical review, this is an extremely pro-woman movie, which oh, yeah. did not come out that way when I first watched it. I, <clears throat> what it does is it makes the, the uh, male chauvinists into absolute buffoons. I, we're definitely going to get to that in the scores. I don't want to rush it a little bit too much. So we'll come back around. Uh, do you mind moving then into best performance? That's fine. I had it as Will Ferrell. I think this is his most signature role. He does a podcast at this point as Ron Burgundy. I think it's his most recognizable character and the one he's most comfortable doing outside of doing George W. Bush. It is somewhat iconic to Will Ferrell movies that if you think of Will Ferrell movies, this one immediately pops to mind. Uh, I think there may be two others that immediately everybody thinks of who's any bit a Will Ferrell fan or even maybe the general public uh, thinks of immediately. But uh, Step Brothers and Talladega Nights to me are not quite on this level as far as the writing and being able to uh, have some level of a sociological commentary, but he has, there are very few films I can point to comedic wise where the lead character is not simply a great straight man. He plays not only a great straight man, but a buffoon himself. He is two different versions of the comedian in one and does it successfully. And so I think he more than anybody else deserves best performance. I agree. I mean, I he's really the glue that holds everything together. The, there's a lot of good performances, quite frankly, and we'll get to my secondary performance in a minute because he got it just because he was able to keep a straight face <laughs> through through the the lines he had to say. Because I think most of the guys or would have been, have done this part would have been constantly breaking up about how stupid they were sounding. But anyway, um, so Will Ferrell really became the kind of the glue that held everybody together, and everything works off of him more or less. There's very little 
in the movie that he either is not involved in or is a significant key piece within the middle of it. Agreed. And so that leads me to the best secondary performance, which I have as Steve Carell, because he played the part. It would have been so easy to overplay the part and really be just almost unbelievable. But he was believable as being so stupid you can't believe it. Absolutely. I honestly feel a little guilty with how good some of the performances are in here. You could arguably say, as far as comedic performances, this might be the best for pretty much uh, the entire cast. I can't think of a better comedy that Christina Applegate's been a part of and or had a better performance. Steve Carell, this might be at the top of his list, and he has done some fairly good uh, comedic movies on his own. Another favorite of mine is 40-Year-Old Virgin, which I'm sure we're going to cover at some point. And, you know, Paul Rudd's been around, done a bunch of different comedies, but he's on a a little bit different level. I think he has uh, a bit of unleashed quality during this movie to be the goofiest version of himself instead of, like, the kind of straight man that he sometimes has to be, kind of that Ant-Man quality that he's kind of become in the last 10 years or so. So I feel weird giving it to Adam McKay, but we mentioned it before that the script is so well-written and the movie is well-produced, well-directed. It doesn't seem like there is a moment out of place. It's cut in a way that it never really truly loses the pace. And you know, for all of the things that held it together. I I really look at Farrell and McKay as a partnership in a lot of ways. I know they founded Funny or Die together, and they've worked a lot together through their production companies and a lot of the things that they've been doing for years now. Uh, Most of the production stuff that they've been doing as they got into more serious work has been together. So it's hard for me not to at least recognize him here even though there are some great performances all throughout this movie. I I understand your argument, and I I, I, I do agree there. My uh, most charismatic award is a little bizarre because usually we think of charismatic as being the uh, larger-than-life being within the film. Uh, I gave it to Judd Apatow because I think he developed a formula for these movies that has gone on for some time, that there's a pacing in these movies that keeps you constantly entertained. There's not a point where you're going eh, I'm a little bored or you have your mind wanders. You kind of keep going on it. And it, it's, it draws you in the more I watch it. Uh, and I think the pacing, the direction, the uh, overall, skill of putting the movie together really becomes bigger than the movie itself. So for most charismatic, I went with Steve Carell. I think that uh, this might be probably one of his best characters of pretty much anything. And I'm going to refer to Brick Tamlin as the human non sequitur. Ow, I just burned my tongue. Yeah, there was a man on fire and I, stabbed a guy with a triton like the amount of random (laughs) things that he just drops in from nowhere i heard they can attract bears 
It, it, and I honestly, uh, other than Ron Burgundy, you probably laugh the most at Brick Tamlin. So I, I think he just, I, I don't know. I smile every time that Steve Carell's on during this movie. And it's just the amount of things that they were able to competently do and fit in and that he just makes, I to me, he's the most charismatic. All right. Going on to best scene. What do you got up first? Um, it's really a two-part scene because they interplay with each other. The first one is the rumble, um, the okay. big one, where it's multi-news teams, then leading into the re- reflection back in Ron's office. That escalated quickly. That really got out of hand. I stabbed a man with a trident. I was thinking of uh, talking to you about that. Uh, you should probably lay low because uh, they're probably out looking for you for murder. Yeah, let's not ruin This is a heavily quoted movie. This might be the movie that I can probably quote the most random lines from. I, I Literally, I think I could quote just about the entire movie from memory. And the amount of times that that came up during high school where this was endlessly the most one-liner movie that you could just bring out something from out of nowhere and be able to get people to laugh at. I, I don't know. This was always one of the special ones for me in high school. But uh, I'll go with the ratings party. I think it was a good opening to really give, I guess, the world setting of how wild, obnoxious, ridiculous these guys are. You cut away from them getting this news that they're the number one news team where you've kind of set it up as to the news side of things, but you haven't really gotten a sense of how their personalities are. And you cut to that really bizarre, especially the first time you see it, uh, sequence where Ron looks like he's about to break some weird news story, but it's in order to jump into the pool and you're not expecting it at least the first time, but now it's become somewhat iconic on its own. Cannonball. But then you proceed to go from there to uh, go through the list of characters. So you get the introductions to uh, Paul Rudd's character, Brian Fantana, and then you get Champ Kine, David Koechner's uh, character, and then you get Brick Tamblin, uh, Steve Carell's character, and then you introduce Christina Applegate. And you really don't know how she fits into all of this, but then you get a real sense of how much of a chauvinist pig uh, Ron is and how much ego is in all four of those characters and really builds up exactly what they think of themselves to be able to then uh, show the rather buffoonish way that they have to act throughout the rest of the movie. I thought it was just a great way of and creative for world building, but all of the random and just completely ridiculous ways that they set themselves up. Later, a doctor will tell me I have an IQ of 48 would be called what some people say mentally retarded. I mean, how is that somebody's introduction? <laughs> yeah. It, it just seems so ridiculous, and yet it fits so well to establish all of these characters in such a great way. Um, I have uh, the uh, scene between Ron and... Uh, and- um, well, it's 60% of the time it works every time. So the I have SC. that down as taking a run at the new girl because I I want to expand that a little bit. 
it's not just that Brian era or uh, that Brian sequence, it's but you also have to expand it to, you know, going to the pants party and uh, champs getting hit in the balls and then sculpting his guns at the office. Yes. Well, you have to include where he comes out and everybody's like, "Ugh, what died? Oh. Well, it's one of the funniest parts of the movie because it makes no sense. But I really started because uh, I have not watched this movie with a critical eye that there are so many things that go into this that you start seeing in a different light post Me Too. Like, I haven't watched this movie probably in a couple of years now. But just thinking through all of the social commentary of how ridiculous these guys are to think that they could score with a woman by being this. And they're the worst versions of this. Like, oh, I'm going to put on a really great cologne or, you know, maybe we could go out for some chicken, have some sex. Like, who does that and thinks that they're legitimately going to be able to pick up a woman? Well, speaking of that, I, I'll just point out uh, my next scene is let's buy new suits. Because the first thing I thought of when I watched this again is the story that after the Lewinsky scandal broke and Bill De- Clinton was real depressed, the Bloodworths, who produced Evening Shade and uh, uh, Designing Women and such, took him out to cheer him up and bought him three new suits. And I'm going... At the time, I'm going, huh? How does that cheer you up? And then they do this, and I'm going, this must be something that men who like pursue sex on a regular basis do. I, I don't ask me. There's got to be something where buying a new suit so that you can look good is somehow a meditative or like enjoyable activity. I don't know. I don't often buy clothes for myself. I don't spend lavishly on myself. Yeah, we're we're very kind of subdued individuals. Did you have anything else from that one? No, I just I just thought about that and I thought it was kind of so I'd bring it up. Okay. Uh, from kind of that same scene, I had the Dorothy Mantooth. I thought it was a great way of giving you a. What's the word? Antagonist, but not the main antagonist, because really the main antagonist is themselves. It's the weirdest way to write a screenplay that you have kind of these faux antagonists. With Vince Vaughn, yes, that's somewhat of his nemesis, but it's not really the the problem that he has to overcome. The real antagonist is he's not willing to adapt or change to the changing times. And so Again, I think from a screenplay perspective, this gives you an introduction, but this does it cleverly that you have this weird setup, and yet it's still funny. But I also look at – they kind of poke fun at themselves a little bit because I have to guarantee that the three guys that surround Vince Vaughn were not contracted or given any money to say any lines and didn't want to give them any of the residuals. So when they make that comment at the end – even the guy who can't think says something. It's poking fun at themselves because they didn't want the other guys to actually say anything and be responsible for having uh, any of the proceeds. I mean, it is a good scene, and I did enjoy it. But and that's what ultimately leads into the big rumble later on, which was like, how many guys can they get to do cameos? 
Well, and it's even worse in the sequel. <laughs> I, I want to say the sequel had more random comedy cameos than uh, uh, an episode of Entourage. Uh, the next one down I had was Jazz Flute. And I know that you really enjoyed this one. I saw you kind of just giggling silently to yourself. Uh, but I, I I don't know. This is such an odd sequence that how you woo a woman is playing a inconsistent song and then jumping around on tables, going underneath the bathroom stall, um, and uh, somehow giving credit at the end of it to Aqualung, a song which doesn't actually have any flute in it. <laughs> But it didn't have cowbell. I, it's just a goofy scene that kind of uh, expands the romantic angle. Because I think this has, a, it's a multi-genre movie in many ways. And this is kind of the romantic com- comedy section of it. So I, I enjoy this scene, even if it's not necessarily my favorite. Uh, my next scene uh, I have down is the the pivot scene, which is... And uh, go fuck yourself, San Diego. I just really... (laughs) Well, no, no no particular reason. I just wanted to use the word fuck on radio. That's that's your only reason for coming up with something? Uh, uh, Why not? (laughs) Don't you know that I would never fucking say fuck? I mean, that whole thing just kind of made me laugh through the whole thing and how you can do that and not have any awareness that you just said it is, is the part that's just hilarious. And, you know, and of course it all blows up and (laughs) uh, yes, Uh, which only led up to the other part, which is the one I'm going to mention leading into that where, where it's Ron Burgundy and his co-host Tits McGee. (laughs) Uh, 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 Tits McGee is off this week I'm Veronica Cordingstone uh, Yes Yeah There were There there is a bit of commentary In the fact that that Somehow as a plot device Makes sense because they set that up earlier in the movie with Ron Burgundy reading the uh, prompter with a question. You stay classy, San Diego. I'm Ron Burgundy? <laughs> yes. And he's so robotic, and yet you're thinking about it. And, of course, this guy who probably is not good at anything other than reading the news is so robotic about reading the news, it's the only reason he's good at it. All right, my final one that I had to nominate is the bear pit. We go into the bear pit. I immediately regret this decision. And then Baxter shows up, and it's it's kind of one of the weirdest ways to end a comedy, and yet makes complete sense with exactly how they've set it up to that point. So for whatever reason, comedies have such a difficult time sometimes sticking the landing and knowing where they're going to end up because they have a great premise but they don't know what the natural conclusion should be for whatever reason, because of how well and tight this script is, it somehow uh, defies most of those uh, usual potholes for comedies. And I think it sticks the landing very well in this sequence. I think from what I've been reading and studying regarding comedic movies, if it's somebody who's a comedian writing a script 
what they tend to do is come up with a premise and then write all the jokes. And then when they run out of ideas for the jokes, they have to figure out how they're going to end the movie. Whereas most screenwriters have a plot idea and they know how it's going to end and then build backwards. So it would be interesting to have a trained comedy writer work from that premise where they know how the movie is going to end and then build the jokes towards the front and see how that worked. Because I don't see a lot of that. I see a lot of the comedy movies all kind of having a conclusion. I think the best one I've seen or can think about is, is everybody kind of knew how Caddyshack was ultimately going to end. That at least had an ending. And I think they filled in with all the stuff leading up to that ending. But other than that, I can't think of too many where the ending is that good. Let's take a gander at favorite scene then. What was yours? The rumble. I just, I just, every time I see that, I'm just like, uh, Brick, where did you get a hand grenade? (laughs) Where the hell did he get a trident? And the fact of Tim Robbins, who's like one of the most like serious actor people, he just randomly shows up as like the NPR guy and then Ben Stiller. I I don't know. Could you say that that's um, cultural appropriation for him playing the Spanish language guy? (laughs) Uh, He's Jewish. Okay. I don't know what Ann Mira was. I don't know. I guess that's a good question. If she had any Hispanic blood, I mean, I don't know what kind, what nationality Mura would be. She was redheaded. I know that much. For those of you who don't know, Ben Stiller's parents were were uh, Stiller and Mura, who were huge uh, husband and wife comedic act in the 50s and 60s. And then his dad, actually, Jerry Stiller, had a long career acting on Seinfeld and on uh what was the other one uh king of queens i think he was on that for a while could be i never watched the show fast of us for the rest of us anyway my favorite was taking a run at the new girl and all the buffoonish pickup attempts that go with that one i can't tell you the amount of times in my life and there's nothing like it where you pull out a uh 60 of the time it works every time most indelible moment, I have the final scene, the bear pit. I don't know, for whatever reason, I, there are iconic lines to this movie that stick out for me. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Uh, you know. The, but I don't want to take one particular line because there are just so many of them, so I'm going to go with the bear pit itself. I mean, you really could say to a certain extent that the most indelible thing about this movie is just the character of Ron Burgundy, but I'll I'll go with that scene. I agree with it, and for this reason and this reason only, the only intelligent person in the entire movie is Baxter the dog. Fair enough. Just the sheer absurdity of the fact that Baxter is the voice of reason and maturity and wisdom ultimately shows just the stupidity of the entire series of events. You know I don't speak Spanish. In English, please. (laughs) That's a good spot to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And now I want to tell you about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. 
It gives you smart creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone, tablet, or computer and helps you distribute them to all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and more. Plus, they help to hook you up with sponsorships like this one, no matter the listener size, which will help help you fund your podcast. And best yet, it's free to use. Look, if you've ever had an itch to talk and express yourself about a topic you like, there is no better time than 2020 to do so. I've started two podcasts this year alone, including this one, and we use Anchor for each and every episode. So what do you have to lose? Download the free Anchor app and or go to anchor.fm to get started making your own podcast today. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. I hope you had a great break. Uh, let's get to In Memoriam. Did you have anybody down this week, Dad? Yes, uh, Gloria Henry passed away at, uh, I believe she was 98. Best known by most people is uh, the mother of Dennis the Menace on the TV show. But in the 1930s, she had a, a thriving career as a starlet in B films, made about 15 to 18 films before she reached middle age and then started playing mothers in various uh, settings, including uh, the Dennis the Menace TV series. Oh, and uh, how old was she? 98. Yeah, I had to say that she probably reached a ripe old age uh, with uh, being in the TV show because that thing was on, what, in the 60s? Um, Actually, the late 50s, early 60s. Okay. All right, let's jump into best lines slash funniest lines. Uh, we'll just go rapid fire on this, and I don't think we need to give you a whole lot of context. This movie is just a bunch of uh, one-liners or one-offs. So, Dad, fire away. They've done studies. You know, 60% of the time, it works every time. Brick and Ron. Yeah, I stabbed a man in the heart. Yeah, I saw that. Brick killed a guy. Did you throw a trident? Yeah, there were horses and a man on fire, and I killed a guy with a trident. Brick, I've been meaning to talk to you about that. You should probably find yourself a safe house or a relative close by. Lay low for a while, because you're probably wanted for murder. Hello? Who's there? I'm talking. Hello? Who is this? Baxter, if that's you? Baxter, bark twice if you're in Milwaukee. Is this Wilt Chamberlain? Have you the courage to say something? Hello? I love carpet. I love desk. Brick, are you just looking at things in the office and saying you love them? I love lamp. Do you really love lamp? Or are you just saying it because you saw it? I love lamp. She was Brazilian or Chinese or something weird. I met her in the bathroom of a Kmart. We made out for hours. Then we parted ways, never to see each other again. I don't think that was love. I hear that their periods attract bears. The bears can smell the menstruation. Where did you get those clothes? At the toilet store? Rick, where'd you get a hand grenade? I don't know. I'm going to take it. Discovered by the Germans in 1904, they named it San Diego, which of course is, or in German means a whale's vagina. No, there's no way that's correct. I'm sorry, I was trying to impress you. I don't know what it means. I'll be honest, I don't think anyone knows what it means anymore. Scholars maintain that the translation was lost hundreds of years ago. 
Doesn't it mean Saint Diego? No, no. No, that's that's what it means, really. Agree to disagree. Ron, um, Brick, before I let you go, are you still having your celebrity golf tournament? Brick, uh, no, no, too many people died last year, so we're not gonna. I will smash your face into a car windshield, then take your mother, Dorothy Mantooth, out for a delicious seafood dinner, and then never call her again. You're watching Channel 4 News with five-time Emmy Award-winning anchor Ron Burgundy and Tits McGee. Loud noises! Son of a bee sting. I don't know what we're yelling about. It's so damn hot. Milk was a bad choice. Are you, are you trying to do Shakespearean Ron Burgundy? <laughs> There's nothing to see here. It's just an illusion. Don't act like you're not impressed. You know, that would be an awesome bit on something, would be to get somebody uh, like um, Ian McKellen or Patrick Stewart to read the lines from Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Tell me about it. This morning I woke up and I shit a squirrel. But what I can't get is the damn thing is still alive. So now I've got a shit-covered squirrel running around in my office, and I don't know what to name it. Oh, I'm sorry, champ. I think I ate your chocolate squirrel. I'm a glass case of emotion. I'm in a glass case of emotion. <laughs> you tried to do the Shakespeare thing again. <laughs> Years later, a doctor will tell me that I have an IQ of 48. And I'm what some people call mentally retarded. That's all I have. I have one left. Well, I could be wrong, but I believe diversity is an old, old wooden ship that was used during the Civil War era. <laughs> yes. All right, you ready to go to the Stanley rubric? I am. All right. Jump into Legacy. What do you have down? Uh, 8.5. I think that this had – it put uh, McKay and uh, Farrell really in square into the public eye. I think it did a big deal for uh, Steve Carell. I think it also did a big deal for Paul Rudd. So I think it really had an impact on multiple movies and really a cultural aspect uh, that's lasted for a number of years as a result. So I figured that I would need to be a bit offset in some of my scoring because uh, how popular this movie has been in my lifetime among my group of friends and that this kind of has its own life in the people I talk to or hang out with. So I ended up going with a 9.5. I think there's a good justification for it, and I'm going to give that here in a second, but we averaged then out to a 9. So it's good that you went a little bit under me because maybe I'm not – the most um, objective about some of this. But well, think about it a second. The guys you hung out with in high school, how far off were the guys you hung out with in high school from these guys as adults? Uh, how f much ever the guys that uh, I hung out with hi in high school and still hang out with uh, are that different from the guys in this movie now? I don't see them that often. I only see one or two of your 
friends from high school anymore. So anyway, I, I agree with the big point that you made that this pretty much launched a decade of McKay, Farrell, Apatow comedies that that trio really kind of got going with this movie. Whether you want to talk about Steve Carell coming out of this movie because he was working on it with Apatow, Apatow asked him if he had any ideas for other movies. Then that set in motion 40-Year-Old Virgin, which begot other Apatow comedies, whether you're talking um, 40-Year-Old Virgin or getting him back together with Seth Rogen, then doing Knocked Up, which begot um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which et cetera, and down the line and down the line and down the line. Or McKay and Farrell, who ended up really fostering a whole generation of comedy with Funny or Die, or the fact that now they're producing some of the best uh, dramatic work on either TV or movies. Um, whether McKay, I think he's been nominated at least once for Best Director, if not twice. Two of his movies have been up for Best Picture, and he's currently the primary producer for one of the best shows on television, uh, Succession on HBO. Directed the first episode, was in uh, part of the original creation of the show, not necessarily the creator, but one of them. So, you know, there's all these little through lines that come from this one moment. Now, theoretically, you could say that them all coming from SNL together at the end of the 2000s might be a little bit more responsible than this movie. But this is proof of concept that they could exist outside of SNL. So the other parts of this, I think this has a cult following. I think it's quite clear that this is an iconic character or the Ron Burgundy podcast wouldn't exist, or there wouldn't have been a big sequel that came out. Uh, you want to talk about the careers of Carell, of Paul Rudd, of David Koechner, all these people that have these bigger, bigger, bigger careers, you know, uh, almost, gosh, this would have been 16, 17 years ago at this point. I think it came out in like April of 2004. So we're, we're pretty close to that 17-year mark. This thing has kind of been one of the landmark comedies of the new millennium, if you will. And realistically, I kind of led off at the top with it. Will Ferrell was probably the biggest name in comedy movies for at least a decade. And it was on partially, if not almost prominently, on the back of this movie. So there was a time where he was an incredibly bankable star, and it started because of this. Impact significance... Oddly enough, I had a 3.5. I actually had a higher score. I had a 5.5. Yeah, this was kind of a u- unusual one for me. And I say this somewhat because I think with a lot of really great comedies, when they first come out, they usually have somewhat of a muted response. And I know this generated a lot of box office money, at least for a comedy. You know, $84 million in 2004 was quite a bit of money for a comedy, and right now it'd be huge because comedies just don't make a ton of money right now. But I don't really think this had its cultural moment until a few years after, you know, when all the DVD sales came around and you had certain people constantly quoting the movie, and it, it just kind of took on this fervor well past when it actually came out. I think it kind of grew in its stature the longer away from the original movie we got. I think that's starting to come down from the apex where probably right before the sequel came out, you would have said that that was probably the uh, height of what this movie was or how it lived in the consciousness. Probably about, I think the, the sequel came out in like 2012, 2013, if I remember right. 
And so right about that 2010 to 2013 range would have been about the top of uh, where this movie lived in the cultural apex. But it was not big up until pretty much that, uh, or excuse me, it didn't hit its highest point until after the five-year window that we usually like to reserve for this category. And realistically, and I put this as somewhat of a caveat, this movie didn't appeal to me until multiple years afterwards. I remember several comedies that I watched, and I'm like, this doesn't make any fucking sense to me. This seems stupid. This was one of them. I didn't like 40-Year-Old Virgin the first time I saw it. And there have been some other movies that I had to give a second or third chance to before I finally got the joke. And then it became, you know, one of my favorites. Well, that's the thing with comedy. Whenever it's fresh or something more original, there's an instant shock factor that you have to overcome because it's different. You can't you're kind of like trying to figure out what the point is or why it's supposed to be doing this. And you, it takes a bit sometimes for the comedy. And I can go back through different genres and different comedians and things that started out slow and then hit huge. And the one I use a, a lot of is Steve Martin, which I will honestly say Steve Martin was an, or took 20 years to become an overnight sensation because he had to build his shtick. And it was so bizarre when he started there were, you know, I was one of the early ones. I think I, the minute he released his album, I had it, you know, and I was telling other kids that in junior high about this guy, and they're looking at me like I'm insane because I'm doing lines from the, from his record. And it was a record yet at that point in time. And it just took a while, but yet I was on the cutting edge and everybody caught up to me and he became huge. And I think that's the same situation you find in a lot of these comedies and especially comedy movies. If it's a unique or fresh approach at doing something, it takes a bit for people to learn to appreciate the, the comedy of it and the artistry of it. It gives me a sort of new appreciation on one of the old family jokes, which has always been, oh, we turned to our comedy segment for our uh, correspondent, Chris Duncan. What did you think of it? It was stupid. Oh, two thumbs up. And how much we've made fun of her over the years for that. I know that she is not always uh, in on the joke, but if there were certain movies that we had to grow to like, I, I at least think you know, maybe we should be a little bit more forgiving the next time. The first time I showed her Monty Python, she looked at me and like, I thought I had like a third eye in my forehead because I'm finding this funny. You don't? No, I don't. I actually don't. Oh. I, I've checked multiple times. It Sometimes it's just a zit, but otherwise, no, I don't have a third mm. eye on my forehead. But uh, uh, I remember that. But then when... Uh, Uncle Andy and I get together and we're quoting lines back and forth and we really get going. Then she thinks it's hilarious. Now she watches them and thinks they're funny. Uh, no. Yeah, she does, but it's got to be the right uh, ones. She likes actually uh, the, the and now for something completely different, which is their first real movie, which was just basically scenes from the TV show. She likes that better, I think, than any of the others. Anyway, what was your score for Impact Significance? 
5.5. I gave it to you. All right. Well, that will then be an average of 4.5. Novelty, what did you have down? 6.5. There were there were a lot of comedy films and ensemble casts, so it wasn't that novel to that expect, aspect. But I gave it a bump up from the average because of the style and the pace and uh, the meter of the comedy. And uh, you could tell to some extent that this was written or starring a lot of guys who had training in improvisation um, just by the sheer style. I think of the whole group, I, I don't know Keckner's background, but uh, and Paul I Rudd was actually he was second city. Was he? If, if you know, I mean, because you have different organizations. I mean, you have Second City, you have the the uh, Rowlings, you've got, uh, and I never had heard of this one before until I started looking it up after watching uh, Ted Lasso. But there was a group that was like uh, the um, Second City that was in Amsterdam of Americans doing improv. And the guy who plays Coach Beard uh, was in that that group, which is where this concept oh. came from, was him uh, watching soccer and sitting around and playing FIFA video games while they had nothing else to do in Amsterdam after <laughs> or when they weren't performing. Would have never known so, that. So I gave it the bump up at 6.5. So I actually went with an 8.5. And there are two big pieces of this that stick out to me. They, we usually say that there are certain comedies, and we've rewarded at least one of them, that has a lot to say sociologically, not just the f- part of getting the easy gag. Like, Airplane is a good comedy, but it isn't really saying a whole lot. Whereas we really rewarded Groundhog Day for being really novel in its commentary and how depth it went in its spirituality and all the angles it came at from that, that point of view. So I think a comedy that really was trying to poke fun at an old version of uh, where we were at with equality and diversity and trying to promote those by showing the buffoonish nature of the old versions of ourselves is actually quite novel. I can't really think of too many others that are really trying to hammer home that type of message, especially through a comedy. The other part of it is is the plot devising of using it as a period piece. I can't think of too many other comedies that were period pieces and done well, but used as a uh, device staging to try and make that commentary. I, I really started to look at it through the lens of all the mechanics that went into everything and I, I get got a new appreciation for how unusual this comedy is by comparison to a lot of its counterparts so that's a seven and a half average between us classicness i have a seven you know normally we talk about cringe moments in these where we start knocking off points there were a couple of small ones and they were really only from the one scene where they're off to go get new suits and, you know, there's that whole thing about uh, how they, uh, well, I'll just say the two. You sound like a gay. Burgundy's being a schoolboy bitch. 
you know, and those, those types of things just kind of like stick out because they're so unusual anymore. And I know that uh, they were really trying to emphasize how, I don't want to say deplorable, but outdated these guys were by using some of those terms and the rest of it. They did a better job of actually aging the jokes in the rest of the movie where I, I didn't honestly find too many cringeworthy moments that for a comedy, you would think that comedy does not age well when we're so hyper sensitive about just about everything uh, with wokeness or whatever else. And I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole again. We kind of have multiple times this season already. But, you know, the addition of absolutely ridiculous comments like, Anchor man, not anchor lady, and that is a scientific fact, really emphasizes that other portion of things, because I thought you made an excellent point recently, that comedy is supposed to be raunchy and intentionally misogynistic to highlight that that way of life was dwindling, and that you can't be that kind of man anymore and still fit in. The part where I really knocked it down the extra couple of points, though, is as much as we'd like to think this is a bygone era, we've seen in the last couple of years, it's really not. <laughs> uh, two points. First off, what I do uh, after I watch the movie is I take out the rubric right away and I write down my preliminary, like right afterwards. And then I think about it for a while. And, you know, what was it really like? What was it saying and such? I, when I originally wrote this down, I was offended by just the misogyny of it, and and I gave it a three. And then I'm like, no, 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 this was supposed to be making fun of these morons who treat women like some sort of object. So all of a sudden, I went back to about a nine, because you could almost do this film as a documentary, and instead of the particular characters, insert Everybody who's been me tooed Charlie Rose. Yes. Uh, Kevin Spacey. I mean, you could have put out all these guys who have been outed. And, and you know, by putting them in their worst scenes or their worst situations, uh, understanding that there's a, a tragic element to this for, you know, some of these women who have been mistreated. But, you know, just the stupidity of this. I mean. You know, Charlie Rose greeting women in his bathrobe hanging open. So what did you end up at? Uh, I came in at a nine. Oh, wow. Okay. So that'll make an eight between us. All right. Uh, so I take it you were at seven? Yeah. And it, it was simply because I, I felt I wanted to be as objective as I could, but it's as much as we'd like to be forward thinking, this is like a movie that says uh, or makes fun of race or people that used to be racist in the 60s. And then we look at like anything today and it's like, well, we're not really that far away from what we were. We're just a little bit more closeted about how we go about it. Like yeah. there's still so many problems with this. And I understand what they're trying to be and. Oddly enough, I think that this is a more prescient film, oddly with time, than I would have thought at the at the moment. Uh, I, I really give them a lot of credit for how well written this this movie is. But it, yeah, I, I felt that because we have still some of the same problems, we can't. 
poke fun at, at the old days and say they were so outdated because, well, frankly, we're still somewhat outdated. I understand, but I'm going to just throw this out. This thought came to me this week. You and I have a favorite movie that we just think is absolutely hilarious. Oh, yeah. It's Mel Brooks's finest, and we've been apprehensive to do it because of the nature <laughs> of it. Okay, blazing straight, Skippy. Well, this movie opens the door for us to do it because we're going. We're pointing out that this film was poking fun at the the misogyny of male testosterone-filled idiots taking advantage of trying to take advantage of women and blazing saddles was a film that was supposed to be poking fun not only of the old west but of racism in particular with most people do not realize that blazing saddles was co-written with mel brooks by richard pryor and uh they they downplayed it because pryor was so controversial warner brothers was like we're not sure we want Pryor's name on anything because originally Brooks wanted Pryor to play Sheriff Bart and the Mm. studio said absolutely not yeah that would have been a slightly different movie (laughs) yeah I certainly don't have any problems with Cleavon Littlow I I suppose if we do a westerns month uh, at some point during the season this year we can use that to cap it off. Okay. All right. Rewatchability. I'll get mine out of the way. This has always been somewhat of a favorite, uh, but it's not It's not even on the all-time comedy favorites from the ones I grew up with. I, I would place a couple of other ones slightly ahead of this one. This falls into that second tier of favorite comedies, and that's even despite the fact that I think I quite literally can quote the entire movie from memory just about to the line, but I, I went with a nine. I had a 7.5. It's a film that if it's on and I'm, you can pick it up in the middle and pick up and watch a bit of it. If it's, you know, like, Oh my gosh, I got to watch this now. That wouldn't be it. So it's not going to be above an eight for me. That's where, you know, I'll actually like think ahead to make sure that I either recorded it or have, you know, sitting by the TV when it's going to be on, such and such. So I gave it right below that because, you know, I don't have to be in the right frame of mind to just sit because I can sit and watch comedy pretty much any time and appreciate it because, unfortunately, my life is full of very serious situations. And any time I can laugh uh, is a great advantage and adds to my soul. Fair enough. So that's an 8.25 between us. Audience score, 8.6 for Google, uh, or 86%, and 86% for Rotten Tomatoes. I think you already know what the average is. It's going to be an 8.6 on our scoring sheet. So add How those long did it take up. you to do the math on that? I'm probably still doing the math. So let's add that all up. We have a 9 for Legacy. We had a 4.5 for Impact Significance. We had a 7.5 for Novelty. We had an 8 for Classicness. We had an 8.25 for Rewatchability. We had a 8.6 for Audience Score. And then that results in 45.85. 
which would currently put it in between Roman Holiday and Pillow Talk on the list. Okay. By the way, if you uh, now click over to the link in our uh, show notes with the entire list at the bottom there, uh, I have linked all of the individual show notes, so you can go back and look at all of the older episodes um, and see how they broke down. So remaining questions. Did you have any, Pop? I know this was set in the 70s, but any more, if somebody put, did that on the teleprompter, you know, I think uh, Corningstone would have gotten fired as well as uh, Burgundy. Um, I think the FCC anymore. would have come calling, yes. So just me, but that was a little hard. But it's hard to put reality into a comedy because why else would somebody be throwing a trident? There's a lot of absurdity. Yes. Uh, my first one. How did Baxter travel from the river to the zoo in basically three minutes? Maybe it was the Los Angeles River. But they're in San Diego. Yeah, I know, but it would have been a lot easier to get from Los Angeles to San Diego. The highway, you know. I'm also making fun because the Los Angeles River is basically a drainage ditch made yeah, of concrete. That will anyway. make a uh, heavy feature in our uh, review of T2 Judgment Day when that one comes around. Okay. There's a famous scene out of there. So, Do you have any other remaining questions? I have lots of questions, but none related to the movie. Are you going to use that line every week now? <laughs> it's like the third week in a row. <laughs> uh... Gotta have fun. All right, my last one. Where did Brick get a hand grenade and a Triton from? I don't know. Is I mean, there a Triton store? Maybe when you're that when you're that limited, there's a certain element of savant. You know, you have the ability to find weapons. Well, I it does say at the end that he worked for the Bush White House, and they certainly were fans of weapons contractors. That's true. Could have been. Early Blackwater. It's an interesting thought. You wonder sometimes if Brick maybe shot some other guy in the face with buckshot, but okay. No, that was a different Adam McKay movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be doing Dodgeball, a true underdog story, currently streaming on either Stars or VOD, so you won't want to miss that one. Please like, subscribe, review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at tj3duncan or at danawduncan. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. 